It is Friday, October 28th, 2022. I'm your host, Kevin Williams. Welcome to another edition of the LDS Life Podcast. It's been a while since I've updated this. As you know, I do another podcast called Canning Plus 7, and that's taken up a lot of my time. But you know, I found something accidentally as I was searching for a radio station in Barley, Idaho, which you're going to hear about later on this podcast. And as I was searching for information about it, I ran into something called Sounds of Sunday. And I thought, oh, I thought that was just a generic term that radio stations used. I didn't realize it was a syndicated thing. So I looked at it and I thought, well, maybe I ought to have Carl Watkins on my show. So Carl Watkins is the guest on this episode of the LDS Life podcast. Now, we started talking about his childhood And we went into how he got interested in the church, because he's a convert. I wanted this conversation to be geared towards the younger people, at least part of this conversation. And so we talked about what it might have been like to grow up in the LDS culture in the 60s, up until probably the late 90s, in terms of music. Because there were some interesting things that happened, and you'll hear about it. Unfortunately, Carl... I don't want to say he was oblivious to it, but he didn't know much about it. And I did because I grew up on the tail end of this. And I especially heard a lot about it in 1990. And then again later when I moved to Utah. But like I said, I was on the very tail end of it. And so we get into that about Lex Diazavedo and his talks about music. And there were others out there, but Lex Diazavedo was the one who was sounding... The alarm bell, if you want to call it that. I'm not comfortable calling it that, but for lack of a better word, sounding the alarm bell about music. Some of it I agreed with, some of it I didn't. But nonetheless, we talked about that. And then we talked about Sounds of Sunday, how that got started, how it got into syndication. And we talked about a person named Glenn Rawson. Some of you may have heard of Glenn Rawson. Glenn Rawson is a person who does stories. I didn't know who Glenn Rawson was until the planned demic is what I call it back in 2020 when he started doing pioneer stories on Facebook. He did a Facebook live thing and I think somebody on my Facebook page shared it or shared it to my Facebook page and then I started listening to it and I mentioned this at the very end of the podcast or towards the very end. There's something about Glenn Rawson's voice that makes me think of me and him, along with my parents, eating tacos at lunchtime at my old house where I grew up in Ontario, Oregon. I don't know why, but tacos come to mind and him telling us stories and him and my parents having a conversation with Glenn Rawson eating tacos. Why? I don't know. But I must not be the only one who has that thought whenever I hear Glenn Rawson talk. I don't know. Maybe someday I will eat tacos. Maybe someday if I get a house, I'll invite Glenn Rawson over and we will eat tacos for lunch and have a good conversation about stories, uh, pioneer stories, Just good conversations in general. Glenn Rawson, by the way, was a seminary teacher up in Blackfoot, Idaho. He was also an institute director. I think he was a director or teacher. I can't remember. It's in the podcast in Idaho at ISU. 
and then he started doing stories and eventually they got syndicated on the airwaves and you'll hear all about it in this episode of the LDS Life Podcast. Speaking of the LDS Life Podcast, let's get to it. It is the LDS Life Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Williams, podcasting to you from Billings, Montana. I know it's been a very long time since I have done a podcast. I've had a lot going on, and I, as many of you know, I do another podcast called Canning Plus 7. So a lot of my energy has been uh, put on that particular podcast. But we're back, and I actually am planning to do some more podcasting on uh, on the LDSLA podcast. I met some people over the weekend at certain conferences and whatnot where we can do a podcast together. I can interview them on the podcast and what have you. How are you, Carl? Oh, doing fine. I'm fine. Good. Uh, Carl Watkins is my guest. And Carl, I actually, uh, Carl does a program, some of you may have heard, called The Sounds of Sunday. Now, The Sounds of Sunday is a syndicated show. It's broadcasted off the internet, not satellite, but it's syndicated from the internet. How many affiliates do you have? 15? Something uh, I like think that? we have, I think 16 right now. 16, uh, okay. Two in Arizona, uh, Idaho. I think there's like, seven of them or something. And then we have a couple of Wyoming and uh, the rest in Utah. Um, but it well, adds up to, I think 16 or 17. I have to double check that. The way I found out about you was I was doing some research on a radio station, KZDX in Burley. Yeah. And your KZDX of- is, is, uh, is hot 100 out of twin falls. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Are they in twin falls now? Or are they, because I know they used to broadcast out of Burley. I think they're in both Jerome and Burley. They have a Burley studio, and that's probably where they do most of it in Burley. But I think they have an office also in Jerome. Okay, we're going to get nerdy for a little bit about radio. So bear with us, folks. We're going to get into Sounds of Sunday. But um, yeah, so I was doing, uh, for those of you radio buffs out there, uh, Hits uh, Variety 100 used to be Hits 99. And before that, it was the super station. I don't know if you remember that. Do you remember that? <laughs> no, I didn't actually live there. I lived in, in Blackfoot for 30 years. And I was okay. with KLC, KLCE Radio. Didn't you pick up Hits 99? Didn't you pick up that? Because I picked up that station in eastern Idaho very well. Yes, it, it it really does come in there strong. They have a very tall mountaintop outside of Burley somewhere. And that signal goes for a long way. Yeah, and in fact, I, uh, yeah, you can pick can... up 99.9 around there. It's it, it's a little faint in some places, but it, it's really quite legitimate. It's amazing how strong it is coming in. Yeah. So, but you, I guess you never did listen to it, though. Not really. I, you know, I hear it passing, but there was a lot of other things I was monitoring. I was okay. chief engineer for a group of stations there in the Blackfoot, Idaho Falls area, Pocatello. And, uh, and in the end, I was actually working with Kalov. I was the engineer for Kalov that put their transmitter on East Butte, which was out of Rigby. I mean, the uh, license was to Rigby, but they covered all that area, Idaho Falls area. Oh, we're going to have to talk about that off the podcast. Yeah, that's a different but, story. Um, that's after I left KLCE, I was doing some other work and engineering work, and I worked for K-Love. Well, I didn't realize uh, Sounds of Sunday was a big deal. Now, I've heard Sounds of Sunday, and we're going to get into that later, but I didn't. I, I just thought it was radio stations using that as a generic name. I didn't realize, and we're going to talk about that. 
but let's get into your childhood real quick. Uh, again, Carl Watkins is my guest, and he does the Sounds of Sunday. You can check it out at soundsofsunday.com. Uh, but yeah, well, anything about your childhood that stands out? I know you're a convert. You can get into that if you want to. Well, technically, uh, you can go onto that page and find out all kinds of information about me. It's kind of concealed, but if you go to the bottom of the page, there is an entry that says Carl's life's experiences. And if you go in there, there's a ton of stuff you'll find out about me because it's just, you know, one bottled up little page. I don't want to consume the page with me. So I have that one little entry, Carl's life's experiences. And then there's several pages in there and there's one on my childhood. So I grew briefly, up in the, uh, briefly tell us how you got into the church and uh, <laughs> how you got into radio. Okay. <laughs> I grew up in Southern California in a place called Linwood, which I later found out was the same high school that Weird Al Yankovic went to. So I felt, hmm, wow, I must be important if I went to the same high school as Weird Al Yankovic. But Weird Al was like 14 years younger than me, so I, he was in diapers when I was in high school. And so I graduated in 1962. And um, getting into the church, okay. My dad was not a member of the church. He grew up in Oklahoma. And all the Watkins relatives are in Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana. That's kind of where my ancestry comes from back there. And he was Baptist, I think. Uh, he wasn't active in any church at all. He was a good man. He smoked, and he told me never to smoke because he wished he'd never stopped, started. And <laughs> so I'm about nine years old, and I'm playing with my friend Ronnie around the corner on a Saturday on the, on the sidewalk in front of the house or the homes in our neighborhood in a wagon. And this Mr. Gintner, Mr. Gintner, I didn't know who he was. He walks by on the sidewalk and he comes up to us. He says, hi, boys. How would you like to go to Sunday school with me tomorrow? I says, oh, okay. He says, well, go get permission from your moms. So we both went to our moms and they said, yeah, it's okay. You can go with them to the Sunday school. So the next morning, uh, Mr. Gintner comes by and picks up Ronnie and me and takes us to Sunday school. And it's at this uh, Protestant uh, evangelical, I wasn't evangelical, it was a non-denominational Protestant church. And it was on the edge of uh, Linwood into Southgate, going north of Linwood into Southgate on Tweedy, I think it was on Tweedy. So we went there, and it was my kind of first exposure to any church. I don't think I went as a kid to any church that I can think of. And when we went there, they would give us little merits. Each time we went, I think we got three merits, and they were like paper money, like Monopoly money. And when you got uh, enough merits, you could go to the chest in the corner and buy something from the chest. And my mom called that a like a come-on church or something. <laughs> I don't know what my oh, mom yeah. did. Yeah, you know, just to get you to come and get the little merits and get something in the corner. Well, I remember the people were very kind to me. I remember the one girl in there taught, Sunday school, and I'll never forget the lesson she taught. It was about um, tell, Miss Tell-A-Lie, and uh, I can't remember what the other was. It was about Miss Tell-A-Lie. Now, Miss Tell-A-Lie would sweep the floor, but rather than pick the dust up in a, in a dustpan, she would sweep the dust under the rug and then put the rug down on the dust. That was Miss Tell-A-Lie. I'll never forget that lesson. Isn't that funny? I could remember it all these years. And I finally kept going to this church Wait, each Sunday. what was Sunday. the point of the lesson, though? It was to be truthful, to pick up the dust and put it in the yeah, can. Don't lie. Was there a story yeah. that she got caught or was yeah. she? 
Yeah. In other words, sweeping the dust under the rug is not cleaning the dust off the floor. It, you're basically lying about it. You're, you're. Yeah. But was there, you know, Miss Tillalai did this and somebody took, pulled up the rug and noticed all this dust. Or I how... can't remember if she got discovered or not. She just didn't. Oh, do it okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. She didn't. Anyway, so I kept going to this church uh, for several weeks, I think probably a month or maybe six weeks. I finally got enough merits to buy what I wanted out of that chest. It was the cross that glowed in the dark. Oh. It was a, like a white cross, and you put it under light, and it would start glowing green. And you could turn off all the lights, and you could see this cross glowing in the dark. And I thought, wow, I want that, man. That's cool. So I finally got the cross that glowed in the dark. I was so excited. Later on, Mr. Gintner comes to my house with his wife and with my mom presents me with my own Bible. Carl is wow. such a good kid. We want to give you a Bible. So they give me this Bible and it was kind of a leather cover. And then there's the inscription inside Carl Watkins or something like that. Uh, Mr. And Mrs. Gintner as I think they were their names. And that was very kind of them to, to give me a Bible because they, they thought so highly of me. Well, Do you remember what version of the Bible it was? It's a King James. Okay. I'm sure yeah, they were into the King James version. I've got it in the other room. Okay. I still have the Bible. It's falling apart, but I still have it. Oh, that wow. was like, uh, what, 60 years ago? I'm, I'm 78 years old. Do the math. So <laughs> that's a long, 70, almost yeah. 70 years ago. So... Anyway, uh, later on, uh, sometime during that period of time, Bill Pickett, who lives around the corner from me on a different street, he's LDS. And I'm a primary age, and we didn't have a church building at that time in Linwood. We met in the back of a theater on Long Beach Boulevard. And I don't know what the theater, I think they did performances in there and stuff. They had a stage in there, and there's some seats. And they, he says, hey, Carl, how would you like to come to primary? What's primary? Well, we meet on Thursdays in the back of the theater. So I agreed to go with them. I thought, well, that'll be fun. So I went to, with Bill Pickett and his mother to primary each Thursday afternoon. I think I went for, I don't know, probably a month or something, maybe six weeks. And I just don't can't remember how many weeks it was. But I remember going there, and it turned out that Bill Pickett's mother was the chorister. And she was up on the stage and directing the music as we sang songs in primary. And we were sitting in the seats of the theater. The only thing I really remember about that is she wore open-toed sandals. And she was up on the stage about eye level from where I was sitting. And I just noticed her toes in her sandals. And when she was directing the music, her toe would go up and down, up and down to the beat of the music. And I thought that was funny. I, I don't know if that's the, it's the only thing I remember about primary when I was nine years old. Okay, and real then, quick. Who is Bill Pickett? Bill Pickett was a kid around the corner from me. Oh, okay. okay. The kid that invited me to primary. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. So Go later ahead. on, later on, the church gets built. It was 1955. And we got a church building across from the high school in Linwood. It's still there to this day. And that was built about 1955. And they said, hey, Carl, how would you like to come to Sunday school with us? we got a brand new church over here. Oh, well, I'm going to this other church on Sunday. Oh, you got to come to our church. And so he persuaded me. And I thought, okay, I'll go to this church one week and your church the next week and back and forth. So I thought, okay, I guess that's what I should do, you know. And so I went to the LDS church for the first time 
And it was nice. The people were very kind to me and uh, can't remember much about it. Kids were there from primary, of course. And I remember this, this thing about, okay, which church do I go to? They're both nice churches. They're both nice people. And one lady was sitting in the back of the foyer. I can't remember who her name was. It might have been Janine Weiler, but I'm not sure if that was her or a different woman. But she said to little nine-year-old Carl, I told her my, my problem, you know, the uh, which church. Well, you know, if they, both, if they teach different things, they can't both be true. What? I had never thought about that before. They mean they teach different things? Yes, they teach one thing, and this we teach different different things. And I thought, well, that makes sense to me. They can't both be true if they're teaching different things about Jesus Christ and about about the gospel in general. So one day, <clears throat> I, I I was pondering this, and maybe a week or two later, I'm in the back of the chapel, thinking about that, and I remember glancing backward toward the track rack. Now, in those days, they had racks on the wall, which contained tracks, like the Joseph Smith story, which church is right, and so forth, all the missionary tracks that would give out. And you could just take one freely and read it if you wanted to take it home. And I was glancing back at the track rack on the wall, pondering, could the Mormon church be the true church? And I just received a very warm feeling that it was the true church. I didn't know anything about it, really. I didn't even know what the Book of Mormon was. I just remember that feeling, this is the true church. And acting on that feeling, I decided that, that I would continue to go to this church. And I remember Mr. Gentner coming over to my house, and my mom having to explain to him, yeah, all my family are Mormons, and we think he should be a Mormon. That was the excuse they pretty much gave him, and he was okay with that. But he felt bad that I was leaving his, his church after the nice Bible they had given me. But that's where my testimony began, really, was that uh, in the back of that foyer, glancing back at that track walk, tracked rack on the wall, wondering which church is true. And what kind of a feeling did you have? It was it was a warm feeling. It was like I this feels like the right thing. Okay. You know, it's like when you're convinced that something's right and you get a warm feeling. I suppose it's the Holy Ghost talking to you. Yeah. Uh, this is true. I mean, you felt confident that you were doing the right thing. Uh-huh. Uh I'm going to say about two years later here, I keep going to the church, the LDS church all that time. All I knew it was, was the Mormon church at that time. That's all I knew. I don't even think I knew what the Book of Mormon was. I think I just liked the church and the people, and I felt good when I, I was there. One day, I'm sitting in the back of the chapel with my friend, Dick Shumway, and I'm about 11, going on 12 years old. And back there, and we gab away. It's Sunday school, and we're just, you know, gabbing away, not paying attention much. So one particular Sunday, Dick Shumway says to me, when I start talking to him, shh, got to be quiet. Why? Because the bishop's watching. The bishop? Oh. What's the bishop? Who's the bishop? He's up there. He, he's always watching you. And he led me to the feeling that he was going to come and, and beat me up or spank me or something if I was if I was talking in the back of the meeting. And I thought, the bishop, he must be a pretty daunting character. You know, I don't know who that is. Who is he? Where is he? Well, he's just up there. He's always watching. Oh, wow. so I thought, 
And I, I looked up there and on the walls, they had speakers, you know, like PA system speakers. Above the sacrament table was one of those uh, little speakers in the wall. It had kind of wooden grill. Oh, it had uh, cloth with wooden spokes on there, like you could see through it. And there was one on the opposite side of the chapel as the door exiting the chapel had a grill speaker up there too. They were decorative more than anything. And uh, then in the back of the organ, there was an organ loft speakers back there, and they looked like um, chalk, um, white lattice assembly with cloth in behind it. And I thought, is he looking out of one of those? Because I thought he was maybe concealed up there looking and sneaking and watching people. <laughs> he said, he's always watching. I don't know where he is or something to that effect. And so I was quiet after that. And then Probably a month later, all of a sudden, kids my age are passing the sacrament. I looked at them, and I said, they're doing the bread and the water. How do you get to do that? And Dick told me, well, you got to be a deacon. Oh, how do you get to be a deacon? Oh, you got to talk to the bishop. <gasps> the bishop? Oh, no. <laughs> so I was a little... I thought, okay, I'll be nice. I haven't talked too much. You'll probably be nice to me. So I went after Sunday school in the back of the lobby, and I says, how do you find the bishop? And he says, oh, he's in the bishop's office in, in the cultural hall. There's right at the door right there off the cultural hall. So I went into the cultural hall, and there's the first door, and that's the bishop's office. And I knocked, and I went in, and he was an older man. He seemed very nice, and he said, I said, uh, I'd like to be a deacon. I thought maybe it was like being a scout or something. I didn't know what the deacon thing meant. Oh, well, you want to be a deacon? And some way they had overlooked me. Here I was 12 years old, and they didn't even ask me. And, and the reason was because I didn't have any records in the ward. He looked up my records to find if I'd been baptized, and I hadn't been. So he says, oh, well, you got to be baptized before you can become a deacon. Oh, well, how do you do that? And he says, well, we'll send the stake missionaries to your house. And so... They sent the stake missionaries to, to give me the 13 discussions, as it was at that time. So that was 1957, I guess, the end of 57. And they gave me the 13 discussions, and uh, my mom was good with it because, you know, she wasn't active, but she didn't have any problems with me uh, following up into the church. So she came to my discussions and so forth, and we set a baptismal date. And uh, uh, I was baptized on January the 4th. 1958. And I was 13 years old then. And then they gave, made me a deacon right after that. So, <laughs> so the my... person who invited you to church, did they, did that person know your mom or did it, was it just I, a random they, I thing? think the reason they invited me because my mother was on the records of the church and I wasn't just, he, she had a boy. Okay. A member. She was a, she was a member. My mother was, but she wasn't active. But uh, apparently they followed up and saw all the kids of the the members, and I happened to be one of them. So I think that's why they invited me particularly. So was your dad okay with this? He must have been. Yeah, he was okay with it. I think my dad was like, uh, let's let Carl make his own. See, my grandmother, my mother's mother was very solid in the church. She was in Long Beach, which was about five miles away. And she didn't bug me too much, and I think my parents insulated me from her. Because it was like my dad was Baptist, my mom was Mormon, if you will. And let's let Carl grow up and make his own decisions in life. And my dad was good with that. And okay. he didn't he didn't he didn't have a problem with me doing it. He just didn't want to be involved with it. My dad never did join the church. He was a good man. Yeah. And uh 
but he taught me right from wrong. That's for sure. My dad was a real good, you know, I, he was a non-member, but he taught me really good things. He was to be respectful of girls and to uh, tell the truth and not steal and things like that. My dad was very good about that. Mm -hmm. He was a good father. Was he active in the Baptist church? No, no. He never went to church at all. Okay. But Interesting. The day came many years later when I finally decided to serve a mission and my grandmother had a lot to do with that. When, when I became a, a member of the church, the, on my baptismal day, my grandmother came. It was in a Long Beach Stake Center, I think, where they had a baptismal font. I was in the South Los Angeles Stake, but I don't know if we had a baptismal font. Uh, but we went to Long Beach to get baptized. And we were over there, and my, my, mother show, my grandma shows up, and she brings me a birthday card to my baptism. And the birthday wow. card says, you're born again. And she was emphatic about that. She had been serving as a stake missionary. My grandmother was a wonderful lady and kind of determined and strong-willed woman, my grandmother uh -huh. was. And I remember she's the one that told me and put it into my head that I could do great things in this life and that I could go on a mission and I could, uh, I, I, I could use my influence in a very positive way in the direction of the gospel. She really put it in my heart to go on a mission and, and to do these things. So my grandmother deserves a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, credit for what I am today. By the way, before we continue with this podcast, I would encourage you, we're not going to get into it here because it's going to take a long time, but if you go to soundsofsunday.com and look at Carl's life experience. I think there's a link. I can't remember. It's about your mom and a pretty dramatic story there. Do you remember how to get it, there? Uh, well, Carl's life's experiences is right. But yeah. there's one on childhood. If you go to the page, I could look at the page. Yeah, I can't, actually... I can't remember off the top of my head what it is. I know it's it's pretty dramatic, though. Are you talking about when she pulled me out of the ocean? Yes. I was six years old. And my dad would go fishing there in uh, uh, Balboa, I think it was, or Seal Beach, in the Seal Beach area along the coast of the Los Angeles, uh, California. And Oh, okay. And one time um, I had gone with my dad and his friend around the corner and my friend Ronnie, his father, his father and Ronnie. And the four of us went and we went fishing. And Ronnie and I, uh, they were fishing off the rocks uh, on, on the south side of the pier there was a big long pier going out into the ocean and ronnie and i said let's go play in the beach and so we ran across to the north side the pier and there was a big beach front over there and we ran out in the water and it was fun it was fun we enjoyed it i was six he was five no big deal Oh, okay so later on my dad decides to take me and my mom to the same place and go fishing again thought it would be fun so we went over there and i think it was on a sunday as i recall Oh, okay. Um, and I says, Mom, I can go play in the beach on the other side. And Ronnie and I go over there all the time. And so I started running across the pier over there. Well, I'm going to come with you. I'm going to come with you. Well, it's okay, Mom. And so she comes with me because she wanted to make sure I was safe and everything. Here, I'm six years old. Typical mother instinct, don't you think? Yes. Yes, it's a yeah. mother's instinct. Mothers yes. do this. Yes, And they my do. mom was, I think she was directed by the Holy Ghost to do what she did. Um, I get out there and I says, mom, look at this cool ocean. So I, I didn't say cool. I don't think I even knew that word. Then. <laughs> look at this ocean. This is a beach over here. So I ran out into the water and a wave that was probably taller than my house 
pounded down on top of me. Oh, dragged no. me out. And I was frightened. I couldn't escape that water. As soon as the water cleared, I got up and ran. And I couldn't run more than five or six feet. And another wave pounded down on top of me and dragged me further out. And this happened at probably two or three times. I was getting exhausted. The water was clearing. I couldn't hardly breathe with the water over my head. I get a big breath and Finally, I felt like I was going to be swept out into the ocean. And it was just awful. I had never seen water like that before. I'd never seen waves that tall. I prayed under the water that I would not die. And I didn't know what else to do. And all I, I get up and run, and another wave would pound me down and start dragging me further out than I was before. My mom's at the beach up there looking down at me. And she finally runs out when the wave is starting to clear and grabs my left hand. And she starts pulling. And when she does, I start running at the same time. We pulled together and she pulled me out of that water. We, we ran up just beyond the reach of the next wave that crashed down. Probably um, we moved about maybe 10 feet. Another wave pounds down. It just barely missed me. Maybe hit my feet. I can't remember. I was... I was petrified over that. It was frightening to me. I thought I was going to die and drown. I couldn't swim. I had never been given swimming lessons. I just, there was no place I'd end up at the bottom of that ocean. It felt like. And I later, when we later left, we didn't see the signs that were posted, but they put the signs up there because we came in from the south of the signs on the pier, pier side. And the sign said, dangerous undertow. Now that happens there periodically. It's a place called the Wedge. I had to look it up to find out later on. I didn't know where it was until, oh, maybe 10 years ago when I started digging into it to find out where was this place. It was Seal Beach, Balboa, I think, and it's called the Wedge. Uh, and that's the only place that had the description of what I remembered seeing at that age. A long pier of rocks and terrible undertow, and that's what it was. Uh, surfers would go out there quite often with surfboards. And because they like the waves and, and I don't know if they surf during the undertow, but uh, certainly this was one of those moments when people, nobody was out in that ocean. There was nobody there. It was very dangerous at that time. Yeah. So, so anyway, my mother saved my life. I know that that's, uh, I would have died if she hadn't been there. So what inspired you to go out into the ocean then? Was it be, have you been out into that ocean yeah, before? Yeah, Ronnie and I would play out in that ocean because when Jack and, and uh, Ronnie and my dad would come fishing, Ronnie and I went on the other side and played in the ocean. It was tame. There was no undertow. It was just regular ocean front. Just that particular day. That particular day, the undertow was terrible. And uh, it would come and go out of that, out of the wedge. Sometimes it was just regular waves. And other times it was terrible, violent undertow waves. I mean, these were huge. That, that wave was taller than my house. It was huge. You know, never yeah, seen you waves. Know, that. Uh, as Maybe it wasn't them. that tall, but from when I'm six years old, you don't know what you're thinking. You know, what, what seems big at that time. Yeah. As you tell the story, I, gosh, I tried to put myself in my shoes. I had a I thought I had a dramatic experience, which you can hear about in an early podcast of mine. Uh, I thought I had a dramatic experience, but it seems like it seems like your experience was a whole lot worse. Well, 
I'm glad it only happened once. Uh, yeah. It, it's like a bad dream to me. You know, when I was that age, it, when I, I relived it probably a couple of years after that, you know, it was just a bad dream. My mom says, well, it, in time, it will go away. You know, things get better with time. So, yeah. Anyway, moving into my radio career. Yes. Um, uh, let's talk about your radio career. How did well, you get into radio? Okay. <laughs> 10 years old, I got a paper out and I made $13 a month delivering papers. And in the fourth grade, Mr. Orwell brought a tape recorder. Now, tape recorder was cool because you could record your voice and play it back. I had never seen anything like that. Now, before. what year was this? Oh, 1954. So they had cassette tapes in 1954. No, 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 no. Reel to reel. Okay. This was a reel to reel I, tape. I right? Okay. Cassettes didn't come along until I'm going to say the eighties or something. No, I, th I saw a cassette tape that was actually no, wait a Take done it back. in the sixties. You're right. Sixties. Because I remember a companion had one on my mission, a cassette player. Yeah. I thought, well, that's cool. Never seen one of the, that was the sixties or late sixties, I think. Yeah. So this was like uh 50, 53, 54. I'm in fourth grade and Mr. Orwall brings a Webcore tape recorder to his classroom, and he lets all the students walk by and talk into the microphone. Then he plays it back, and I go, "Wow! Listen, I couldn't believe it. You could hear your voice, and I'd never heard my voice before." And all the kids did that, and I was just fantasized by that tape recorder. So, in the fifth grade, I'm having a paper out, and I'm saving up money. My mom says, "You save up your money, and you can buy a tape recorder." I thought, "Whoa, that's what I want." So. I saved up $93, um, I think over, I don't know, eight months. That's probably the most I ever saved in my life. I never saved for anything. I'd spend it as soon as I get it. And my mom made me save my money. And we went to the white front re, uh, department store in Los Angeles. And it was a, it was kind of like a Costco or, you know, like a discount store. Yeah. Wholesale. So Basically I bought everything and, you want in there. Yeah. And, and they bought, and you could get it at wholesale prices. And so oh my gosh. here's a voice of music tape recorder, VM, voice of music. And it's, it looks like a little speaker in the front, you know, it, it's just a tape recorder and you can put a microphone in and talk to it or whatever. And I bought one of those. It was a retail price was $175.50, but wholesale, it was $134.75. I only had $93. My mom kicked in the rest. So we bought one. And it was on December 22nd of 1955, as I recall, just before Christmas. And I came home and I was so excited with that tape recorder. And I was really interested in radio. I loved listening to the, the, to the music on the radio. And my favorite, one of my favorite things was recording songs off the radio. So I didn't have to buy the records. You know, I would cheap. Oh yeah. We all, <laughs> I didn't have a, those I didn't of have a phonograph anyway. Probably over, I would say the age of 35, we all did that. Yeah. Yeah. At some point we all so did I, that. I'd record, I, I, KRLA was my station. It was, they played pop music and everything, you know, and, and I'd record songs on the radio and play them back. And my friends would come over, you want to hear a song? Yeah. Okay. And we play it. And that's what I did mostly with my tape recorders, record songs off the radio. Okay. So it must and, have been a built-in tape recorder then, a built-in, a radio. Oh, he had a speaker built in. Yeah, it had a speaker built in. It was like a like a phonograph with a record with a speaker in it. Yeah, it was but like it, that it must it. have had a radio built into it. Oh too, no, right? it did not have a radio in it. No. Oh, no. you just put no. the I what I did the... is connected it. I, I learned how to surgically connect it onto a radio. Actually, I bought a tuner 
from Heathkit later on and built the tuner. It was an AM radio tuner. Oh, and the tuner would connect directly to the input of the tape recorder. I learned how to do that. So, so I got into electronics when I was, um, when I was about, uh, I got to 12 or 13 years old, I was in junior high and I got in with a couple of friends into electronics. So I got really into electronics. I learned how to build a power supply. The man next door to me, which was uh, Ronnie's father, different Ronnie. There were two Ronnies in my neighborhood. The one next door was Ronnie Clayton. His dad was a ham operator. And he had, I was fascinated. I'd go into his uh, back, back office where he had his ham radio. And I would talk to him a little bit. And, you know, I was young and I was probably uh, kind of, a nuisance to him, but he was <laughs> nice enough to tell me a few things, you know, and I, I learned how to build a power supply and it was a tube type power supply. You, if, unless you're into electronics, you probably want to understand what I'm talking about, but we charge up. Well, capacitors. for those of you that don't know, I, I know a power supply, basically it would, it would convert the power off, off the, yes, uh, uh, yeah, that you plug it say. into the wall and would convert that power into high voltage, like maybe 400 volts or so. Yeah, you power. Less, I, yeah, you could it, power a radio with it, or something. You know, with the electronics of a radio at that time, you needed high voltage because it was tube type stuff. Yeah, because well, I, I had a CB radio and I had to power it down to twelve volts. So I had to yeah, have a well, power yeah. supply. Yeah, but, but so the it could actual, go up and down. The components inside there needed high voltage, like the tubes. Oh, okay. All, yeah. But they weren't solid state. They weren't transistor. They were tube type, and they required at least a, a couple hundred volts to make those tubes right work right. So I think I had a power supply that put out 350 volts or something like that, 400 volts with a transformer, and it was DC, and I charge up capacitors, electrolytic capacitors, and uh, then you could put them on a piece of metal, and they would spark like a firecracker because they dis- discharged the capacitor. And that was fun. <laughs> you didn't want to touch it because it would buzz you, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it would shock you if you touched it. So I learned to, to do that. I was probably 12 or 13 at the time. And then like, and then I, into high school, I took four years of electronics in high school. And our high school uh, was probably the only in the area that offered electronics class, which was really kind of cool. Electronics shop. So AC circuits, DC circuits, vacuum tube design, and uh, the principles of television. We learned all those in the four years. So I determined to become an electrical engineer. Uh, but I was so drawn to radio broadcasting and the music and the drama of it that I loved it. Uh, so it's just something I couldn't let go of. I loved radio. I loved listening to radio. I eventually, when I was a junior in high school, determined that I'd like to be one of those guys on the radio. I would love to use my voice. And, and uh, I was kind of a nerd. I don't think the girls thought much about me. I was kind of a awkward socially kid i was an only child so i didn't have any sisters so i didn't know how to you know exactly relate to girls very well nor brothers (laughs) yeah but i thought if i were a dj on the radio then i could be mr popular and meet a girl wow isn't that cool huh that was sort of on my mind (laughs) you know i gained social acceptance so anyway i uh i went to one year at byu and then i came back home and then i went on a mission Finally, when I was 21, I went on a mission and I kept working on amplifiers and speakers and stuff in the interim. I really liked that kind of stuff. Uh, where do we go from here? Okay. So, well, okay. So, um, 
let's get into let's just briefly mention that you worked i, I don't want to get into your whole entire radio career because that take forever but um let's just uh uh do you want to talk about your mission any spiritual experiences well, that you've had or yeah uh before my mission i met this girl at the long beach steak dance named april april fagan was her name and not donald fagan from steely dan uh <laughs> same last name not the same family oh. but she was a pretty girl her name was april okay and i had a crush on her but I don't think she had a crush. She didn't have a crush on me. <laughs> she could, she could care less about me. Okay. You know? Okay. She was nice and pretty, but I guess I wasn't what she wanted. And I remember I was, my heart was just throbbing and I wrote this song uh, called April. And I thought, Oh, that's a cool song. As I was just thinking about her a lot. And finally, when she kind of resigned that I wasn't exactly first on her list, I says, why did I write a song about her anyway? I need to meet another girl. So I changed the name of the song to Angel. I says, I'm not going to just sit in here and, and uh, what's the word, uh, pine over her that I'll never have her or anything like that. I'll just make it about a girl named Angel, uh, some girl that I'll meet someday in the future. So I wrote the song Angel, and when I'm on my mission in the MTC in Salt Lake City at the time, they offer us opportunity to uh, do a talent thing before we go into the mission field. We're two years in the, two weeks in the mission home. And just before we left, we got the opportunity to perform in uh, at the uh, MTC to show our talent. And so I thought, well, I'll just sing angel. Cause I was pretty good at singing and I had my guitar and I could sing it. Oh, okay. and I thought, well, I should write some missionary verses to this. So it was only a two verse song. So I wrote two more verses that, uh, was about missionary work and coming back off a mission and marrying my, my angel. And so I performed that at the MTC, uh, before I went out and I thought that was a cool thing, cool addition to my song, <laughs> but it made it very LDS of course. And later on, on my mission, I acquired a tape recorder. It was a Sony. And, uh, I thought, was it oh, a cassette recorder or no, was it was it... a reel to reel still back okay. to reel. Yeah. It was a big reel to reel okay. and you could actually do sound on sound recordings. You could record in the left channel and then add something to it and put it in the right channel as a mix. So I did oh, this, wow. did this several times. Uh, one morning I woke up and I, pl I borrowed a guitar from a member in Livingston, Montana. And, uh, I played the rhythm track and then I played a, I, I kind of invented a lead guitar track. And I added that to it and I went to bed and next morning I woke up first thing I recorded the first, the solo track of angel, you know, the solo singing part. Yeah. And then I added a harmonizing part to it again, the, the final track. And then that's the way it stood for a long time. And the mission president got wind that I was recording this song and he thought, maybe I should hold on to that tape recorder. Carl is little, distracted from missionary work, doing music in his closet, which I was. My clothes closet is where I recorded it, uh, padded up with clothes so it wasn't a coic in there. And so he took my tape recorder. I said, oh, okay, I'll be a good missionary. So later on, I'm transferred to Lewistown, and then I go to Blackfoot, Idaho, where I served for five months on my mission. While I'm in oh. Blackfoot, I acquired a, a bass guitar from the music store, 
And the zone leader let me use his recorder on like a P-Day or a D-Day, as we called it back then. And I got two recorders, and I transferred what I had with a bass guitar onto another tape on another machine. And so I added bass to it. So there was the angel with a bass track now on there. And that's pretty much how it stood as a composite recording. And later on, the new mission president gave me back my tape recorder. <laughs> he thought I was big enough and mature enough to handle it now. So I got it back on my uh, route to Bismarck, uh, North Dakota. Mandan and Bismarck, North Dakota is my next area. Mm -hmm. And then I came to Bozeman and finished up my mission. So after my mission, maybe this would be good uh, to release us on a record. So I was up at Rick's College going to school, working at KIGO in St. Anthony, probably my second radio job ever. And I'm becoming like the afternoon radio jock, you know, talking to the teenagers. And that was just my heart's throb to be that and kind of guy. What year was this, 67? Uh, yeah, it was 68. It was 68. So and, I'm going to stop you. Did they play uh, since, uh, you know, we're, radio was different back then. And yeah. we're talking about conservative Idaho. Did they play things by the doors or did they? Yeah, play? they did. The oh, doors, really? Uh, but Light My Fire wasn't considered, you know, rebellious or rowdy necessarily. Um, okay, I'm sure there were they have played a song like The End or something like that? It wasn't really a hit, though. Uh, oh. I don't remember the end really. I remember really? Oh, okay. light. My fire was the huge song and that was so popular in 1967 uh -huh. and they had no problem playing most pop music. Uh, I don't think they screened much off the radio. There wasn't really much that was all that bad back then. Um, I just remember reading a book called uh, the hearts of the children. It was a series and in the book, it's a fictitious book about Salt Lake culture and LDS culture, how it was in Utah and Salt Lake particular. And in the uh, scene in the book, one of the guys that was kind of a rebel, not a member of the church, uh, he was into the Rolling Stones and all that. And yeah, this girl said, oh, I, I you know, thought to herself, I feel uncomfortable listening to the Rolling Stones. Our bishop told us not to. So I wondered nah. if you encountered any of that. I with... didn't. Re no, I didn't get that much. I know that they could set bad examples. Like Mick Jagger and those people. Yeah, they were pretty. Yeah, they, yeah, they were some. And there was a Janis Joplin and the Jefferson yeah. Airplane, stuff like that. You know, and there was a lot of anti-Vietnam protest music going on. Make love, not war. And what they would do and model their uh, political attitudes in a very distasteful way wasn't acceptable by anyone. And, and along with me, of course, I didn't accept it either. Um. I don't think it restricted our playing their music, though, because the music didn't necessarily um, promote anything immoral. Uh, at least the pop music didn't. Uh, not much. There might have been an occasional song that did, but not too often. So I don't know that there was any real driven intention to restrict the music up in Idaho. Well, I will tell you this. Yeah. Uh, my mother... Oh, she is much more conservative than me when it comes to music, much more conservative than I will ever be. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember asking her specifically, did you like the doors? No, they were saintly. Well, okay, but weren't you one of those people that maybe you liked the song, but you didn't like the lyrics? No, I can listen to something good with a good beat. I mean, she was just real. And she, she uh, and my mother was a great mom. I don't want you to. Well, you got to remember now, 
Kevin, you're, you're from a different generation. In the 80s, we got all the heavy metal stuff that came about. Mm-hmm. It didn't really exist much in the 60s. I mean, Inagata DeVita was, was just about... I was going to say, though, she did yeah, not Yeah, that was about like... as heavy as it got. And that was something you could blow your ears out with. You just, In fact, I remember going to Rick's and had my big speaker set up in my house up on the hill there, playing Inagata DeVita, the 17-minute version, and going, wow, I have that. man. My ears are ringing. Wow, this is cool. You know, <laughs> but I did. There wasn't anything that I sensed that was immoral about it. Well, yeah. So I just, my mom was, I, she didn't even, she wouldn't even listen to Simon and Garfunkel. She thought they were too flowery. Well, Mrs. Robinson, <laughs> you saw the graduate. She was a pretty risque woman, you know, going mm-hmm. after her daughter's boyfriend, trying to bed him. That was pretty bad. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know. The movie was there, but the music didn't necessarily associate that. Maybe subtly it did, but it wasn't enough to keep people from playing it. The way I look at Mrs. Robertson, I want to get off on a tangent, but the way I look at Mrs. Robertson, I've read the lyrics. Robinson. 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 Mm-hmm. I look at it as a song of encouragement. I look at it as, okay, you sinned. You cheated on so-and-so or you slept with so-and-so. Yeah. Get over it. Jesus has a plan for you. That's how I I always look well, at it as a I thought it was a mockery song. song. Really? Hey, Mrs. Robinson, Jesus loves you more than you could know. I, ho, ho, ho. It was like she was mocking him. I think he was the song was playing to a hypocritical woman, is what it was. That's what I got out of the song. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe so. <laughs> and I she mean, was hypocritical. <laughs> yeah. I, I just wondered if you encountered people like my mom. Oh, I'm not listening to the doors. I'm not listening to your station. I'm not there were doing- probably a few people like that around, but I didn't meet him very often. Okay. So uh, when did but the songs that I really liked didn't necessarily gravitate to that direction? There was a there was underground music, which we didn't play, and I never never was into it. Now define underground music. Are you talking it was about like music album oriented rock? It was like non-hit music was on other tracks on the album. So give that me people... some names. Mm. Like the Kinks or the Animals. Now the Kinks or... were pretty popular. You really got me. Yep. It was other songs on their albums, and I can't name the songs that might have been thought to be underground. And in the 70s, there was uh, some stations that came out playing underground, called it AOR, which is album-oriented yes. rock. Yep. Yeah. And I wasn't into that. I, I, it wasn't into my culture. It wasn't in my interest, really. Okay. Um, I was a Bubba Gummer at heart. You know, I liked Leapy Lee and Little Arrows and <laughs> little songs. So, you know? <laughs> I don't want to get too off topic, but I think this is interesting, and I think this is interesting for the younger generation to hear. Mm-hmm. I will be much more liberal about what music I like than my parents were ever. Yeah. Well, my parents, <laughs> my parents weren't into it either. That Elvis, how disgusting. Oh, my yeah, dad but... would say, look at those sideburns. I'm not here to shave them. And now you got to remember my dad was in the culture. He served in world war two. He was a chef, but everybody was uh, very short haired, you know, mm-hmm. and clean shaven and they wore helmets because they well, had a lot of hair. They couldn't get the helmets on. We had a rule. If it was heavy metal, we yeah. weren't going. To, we weren't supposed to listen to it. So what did I do? I buy the CDs. You know, I was in high school in the nineties. Well, Def Bush. Leopard was a different day. Def, I remember. Oh, yeah, my son I'm just. I, you know, I used to yeah. just kind of thumb my nose at my parents. I'd buy the CD and put it under my clothes and my dresser or something. Uh-uh, you're not telling me what I can and can't listen to. I'll hide it from you. <laughs> 
I re- <laughs> You're not the only generation. My son, David, he was in high school, and he some way got a Dr. Dre CD. Mm-hmm. And I did. I wasn't aware who Dr. Dre was. I was working for KLCE, but they're an adult contemporary station, so I was a little unaware of the teen uh, music that was playing. It was mostly adult that I was playing. This would have been, oh, 1990, 93, somewhere in there. But he got this Def Leppard's, was it Def Leppard? No, it was uh, Dr. Dre. Dre. Yeah. And I, he was at school one day and I took that Dr. Dre and I, I heard that this is bad. Somebody told me that this stuff has a lot of bad stuff in it. So I transcribed the song on the CD. I wrote it, the words into the computer. When he came home, he discovered that I had that CD out and he was, I didn't like it. And he oh, didn't like no. me. Yeah. Well, I want you to look at this, David. I want you to read these lyrics. If you think this is a good song, you go ahead and listen to it. Go ahead and read the lyrics here. And he read them. <laughs> and he didn't say anything, but I can't remember. A short time later, he sold off that CD to a friend. He didn't want to keep it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sounds like you handled it more diplomatically than my well, parents, though. You got. You know what? Here's the thing. You got to teach your kids how to think. You can't constantly tell them what to do and how to think. Nope. They've got to think for themselves because they won't have you in your life. Yeah. Kid, and, and that's more powerful than telling them what they can't and can't do because they don't even know why they can't can't do it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they need to really be responsible for their own actions. And if they're constantly under somebody's thumb, they can't get that way very quickly. Now, there's yeah. always limitations. You're not going to allow all kinds of uh, terrible things to go on in your house out yeah. of respect for your own values. But if he plays Dr. Dre in his bedroom away from everyone, uh, it doesn't really affect anybody but him. Yeah. And he just needs to listen to know what he's listening to. And when he discovered what it was, he didn't want to keep it. It was rap. And who likes rap? You know, I keep thinking rap is prob- probably a poor substitute for people that can't sing. But yeah. was, so some people did liked it. music and we'll get into a little bit of your radio career sounds, uh, uh, sounds of Sabbath, but when do you remember music becoming really controversial and bishops maybe telling their youth, don't listen to this song or well, I'm I sure think that, that happened. I remember to. something was said probably in the seventies or something about heavy metal. Oh, and we shouldn't get into heavy metal. And I'm sure that encroached on your day because oh, a lot of it was heavy metal. I was, yeah. And I don't know what to think because in my day, there was some caution about that rock and roll. Yeah. How disgusting is rock and roll and immoral and so forth. Now, a lot of it had to do with their personal preference and taste in music, what they grew up with. My parents didn't grow up with Elvis Presley. They didn't grow up with the... Uh, Iron Butterfly or or anything else. I mean, they knew the big band. That was it. And that was the good music of the day, big band music. Although there was pretty sleazy songs back then, too, if you listen to sure. some of the lyrics. Oh, gosh, I heard a yeah. jazz song. My baby don't care for clothes. My baby don't care for this. She just cares. He just cares for me. Jesus, that's not <laughs> sexual innuendo. <laughs> I don't know what is. Baby, it's cold outside. You remember that? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yep. And so they were a little more liberal for the things they grew up with, and they were more forgiving of it. But when they heard this foreign new music from their kids, uh, there was less uh, uh, less patience with us. I think they just kind of didn't really listen to it, and they just figured it's departing from my norm of what, I, what I'm used to hearing. And so 
they were a little uncomfortable for their kids to have these new, this new music coming to them. And we felt the same way with our kids, you know? So, uh, so, so wait, there's gotta be a moderate approach here. I remember DJing dances. I DJ a lot of steak dances. Yeah. And, but I wasn't necessarily, I didn't have much of an appeal for heavy metal. You couldn't dance to it for one thing. So I'd pull out celebration by cool in the gang. You know, that was a great song. Mm-hmm. celebrate good times, yep. uh, stars on 45, uh, different things like that, that I would play out a good beat to them. And they were just fun to dance to and the big bass line on there and everything, you know, they'd, uh, just sound great to listen to, but I don't think there was anything that was terribly immoral about the music that I gravitated to. I didn't seem to like it in the first place. So it made it a little easier to comply. Uh, I never was into AOR. It just seemed offbeat on mainstream. I thought, why do I care? It's almost like, um, concentrated depression when you'd listen to it. I mean, do I want to be depressed? Not particularly. And I think some kids were troubled emotionally and they liked that and it helped them out. It helped them, uh, uh, identify with their emotions of, uh, feeling sad or depressed or lonely or something like that. So they got into heavy metal. So being, I don't know if that's the reason that's just my, that's, that's the back of my head. What makes me think they liked it. So uh, being in radio, yeah, in the broad, especially in Salt Lake, you had to have encountered people like Lex Diazavedo giving youth firesides about music and yeah. saying you had to have encountered. What was your take on some of that? You had to encounter. I, some I of heard that. one time. I can't remember what year it was. I'm going to say in the 90s. I'm not sure if it was Lex Diazavedo. It could have been him or somebody else. I thought it was Lex somewhere. He said that bass, all that bass in the music will drive people to sex. It stimulates your sexual emotions or something. And I thought, is that really true? I didn't know if I bought it. <laughs> That's yeah. the only time I ever heard it, though. Well, it's like uh, I heard a, a talk from uh, somebody read me a transcript from Gene R. Cook. And supposedly Gene R. Cook apparently uh, met Mick Jagger on an airplane. I don't think oh, yeah. he would lie about this. Yeah, and Mick Jagger says we want to drive the teens to sex. Yeah, and I'm thinking, okay, yeah. I've heard uh, "Start Me Up" from the Rolling Stones. I've heard several others. Last thing on my mind is sex. I don't know what he was talking about. Well, maybe in concerts he was talking about it. I'm not sure exactly. I heard there were some pretty risque things that went on in concert with Mick Jagger. Oh, that wouldn't surprise me. Was yeah. Okay. And I think they pulled their clothes off and different things. I don't but, know what they did. So I, I, I guess my. I, I would imagine that you would have encountered a ton of this being in broadcasting in Utah. And yeah, uh, you would have come across. There were that... some songs that made me uncomfortable to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, Get it on. What was it? T-Rex or what was it? Mm-hmm. It was a KCPX in Salt Lake city. And I was working there when we first got married in 71 and oh, it was get it on. It was okay. get it on. Uh, and, and there was a couple of other songs that seemed very quite suggestive when you listen to them. And I thought, yeah, well, they, the program director pulled them out to play and they were national hits. So we played them. Uh, we didn't restrict play on those songs. I don't think they played all of it. I mean, all of those songs, but the major hits, they, they didn't not play. They always played, seemed like the major hits. Okay. So where did you work in 1984, which I believe is when the song 84, I was in Salt Lake. I was at uh, uh, KLCY in Salt Lake, Call FM. And we played adult contemporary, so we didn't get into that. 
But in 85, okay. I think I went over to Kissin. They were still adult contemporary. I didn't really get into the teen music much beyond that time. I hear I was 30 some odd years old and I was identifying more as an adult anyway. And it was kind of a new modern adult format that really didn't expose much of the immoral element. I'm just much. putting myself in your shoes yeah. and yeah. being a broadcaster, I would have wanted to work all over the dial in Salt Lake, regardless of the format. <laughs> no, uh, I was pretty selective with my format. I would want, I wasn't you know, into country. I didn't like country. I wasn't into heavy metal. Just play me the hits, please. That's what I was into. Huh. So yeah, because <laughs> I would have just imagined me being in Salt Lake, me being LDS, I would have encountered the Lex Diaz Avedos, probably had debates with them, or, but you never got into any of that with those. Well, people. Lex Diaz Avedo wasn't on the radio in Salt Lake. No, but you know, he would have come to firesides or maybe Yeah, I, I never went to have... those. I, I was a young man. I had kids. I wasn't into that social element at all. I was just raising the family. And, okay. Yeah. I just yeah. figured, oh, well, Lex Diazavito's coming. I'm a, maybe they had you as young men's president. Oh, well, we're going to go see this guy tonight. <laughs> uh, young men, let's go. Oh, I want to debate this guy. I don't believe everything he's saying. I'm a DJ. I, I think you'd want to challenge him on something. I know. And I think the only time I ever heard it was once in Idaho. And it was up, like I say, in the nineties, when I heard him say something like that, or I heard that he said it, I don't think he said it to me. It circulated that he said, you know, all this bass track will lead kids to sex. Yeah. And I remember hearing that theory. I wasn't sure if I entirely bought it because I couldn't feel it, what he was telling me. Yeah. Now I could see some R&B, but let's, okay, so you worked at, what stations did you work at in Salt Lake? You worked at KCPX, well, Kissin 97? Yeah. When, when we were first married, I, I worked at uh, KNAC. I did the midnight to six. That was an interesting story. Was that <laughs> on 1320? Or was no, that... it was at 1280. 1280. 1280, okay. It's KDYL now, yep. I think. Well, it's KZNN. But yeah. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, KZNN, the they've changed yep. again. Yeah, back then it was the number one station in Salt Lake for the teens, you know, KNAC. And, and uh, Lynn Lehman was the morning, and Wooly Waldron was a program director, Skinny Johnny Mitchell at night. I think I was doing overnights. Gene Davis was doing the morning show when I was there. So what happened at KNAC? is KCPX hired away the talent. And I'm thinking it was around 68 or so. Yeah, it's so about 68. Wooly and Lehman and Skinny all went over to, and John Benson went over to KCPX. And then in 69, I came to town, and I was going to BYU, and I went into radio, and I worked some Provo stations, and then I found myself doing overnights at KNAC. Gene Davis was the morning guy after Lehman had gone over to KCPX. Gene Davis today, I think, is a is a county commissioner or something in Salt Lake. Oh, okay. He's a big deal. <laughs> so, but he was doing the morning show and I was doing overnights and I was dating my wife and and we got married in 71, in June of 71. And then shortly after that, uh, I went full-time at KEYY in Provo, and then I went KCPX on the weekends. So I worked weekends at KCPX. And uh, then we moved moved to California and I was at a couple of markets there, Santa Maria, San Bernardino, went to Denver, came down to Phoenix. I went, I ran around like a gypsy, like a madman, you know, every three months I had a different job or six yep. months or something Yeah. up to Fresno. And then I went up to Portland and then I came down to Salt Lake and did the morning show on KRSP, Dr. Carl in the morning, which would have been 70, uh, late 75, December of 75. 
and I left there in 77, and I eventually went to KCPX again. And there was a lot of stuff that went on in between. You went, why did I change jobs so much? Well, you got fired at some, yeah. and I quit at others, you know, trying to make more money or one thing or another. And there's a lot of politics in radio. Um, it's not that you're not good. It's just that they don't like you, or maybe you don't like, they don't like something about you or whatever. They'll put up with you, you know, they'll put up with you, even if you're not good on the air, if you have nice diplomatic skills. And I don't know if I always possessed them. <laughs> well, I actually so, have a friend who told me if you, if you've worked in radio and didn't get fired at least three or four times, you're not doing something right. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it, 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 it's too bad because the best stations on the dial, Wooly Waldron, KCPX, that was dominant. He did not believe in that circus routine. I worked for Wooly three times and I was, you know, going in pursuit of different jobs. But he was probably one of the best program directors I ever had because he didn't go around firing people. He let them be themselves and within, within parameters, you know, you're going to have limits as to what you're going to do on the air. You don't want to misrepresent the station. And uh, I worked for him late 78, and he actually offered me the morning job. And I didn't take it because I wanted to go to Provo and put a station on the air. I was half engineer. So I put uh, 94.9 on the air, which was uh, KRMQ at the time. Oh. And went it up on, uh, up on Lake Mountain. We had the transmitter up there. And then I went, we went to San Diego after that and were there six months and got drawn back to Salt Lake for KLCY, which was call FM. They were changing into an AC on their FM. And worked there a couple of years and program director change, which sent me out the door, worked over at Kissin, did mornings on Kissin for a while before Fisher and Todd got there. Mm -hmm. And then I went over to K-Light, which was 93.3 and was doing the love light in the evening. I did the mornings at first and the love light. Then we went up to Idaho. We were basically in between this, I would get, I got fired at Classy when the program director left. We couldn't afford the mortgage payments at our house in West Jordan. We eventually ended up losing the house because I couldn't recover the mortgage payments. Couldn't oh. get caught up. So we moved to Rexburg and we were there a year and then moved down to Blackfoot and we were there 30 years. KLCE in Blackfoot was probably the best job I ever had. Uh, Jim Burgoyne is one of the finest men you'll ever meet as far, you know, he's a good man, principled, and he also believes in the longevity concept for his employees. He doesn't go around firing people. He builds on a strength and those stations win. The ones that go around firing people all the time do not win because there's a, there's a moral to this. What comes around goes around. I mean, if you want good ratings, you build on the people you have, even though they're most, not the most talented people. They, they develop into the, to better talented people and you're able to use them uh, in their, their talent to um, make the station very popular. And that's what he did in Idaho. He was now he was dominant there, and he's the one that invented Sounds of Sunday, by the way. Yeah, so we're going to get into that in just yeah. a few minutes. Sorry, radio audience, but there's a lot to cover, and I think this conversation is worth having, especially for the younger generation, to know what we dealt with as kids, although Carl's much older than me. But um, how did you support yourself? Because there is not a lot of money in radio unless you're, you're right. a morning guy. You're right. <laughs> or if you're a Rush Limbaugh or something. How did you support yourself with seven well, kids? That's I well, I was uh I was also the chief engineer. They made me the chief engineer at KLC, Jim Burgoyne did, and it gave me a little pay increase, but not a lot. My wife worked at the homestead uh, right there where she, uh, bakery, 
And that's when after our baby boy was in kindergarten. And so that helped. And I did a lot of dances. I DJed a lot of dances. I went to stake centers and high schools and took the speakers out and played dances. And so I'd make a couple hundred bucks doing that each night, which mm -hmm. helped a lot. And so you're right. You don't get paid a lot in radio. No, I, I'm just trying to think. <laughs> you do it How because you, you love it. If you didn't love it so much, they'd have to pay you more. I guess that's it. <laughs> I, I'm just imagining. Now, it was probably easier back in the 80s, 70s, but I just, I don't think you could do it today on one income as a DJ. Unless I don't think you could. Could you? Well, it depends on, I don't know. I don't know what they're paid today. I There's a lot of factors. I mean, you look at nothing you could do on one income today. It just seems like everybody has to work two jobs anymore, not just radio. Yeah. Now, if you're a big star, like uh, like Danny Kramer at KSL or something, oh, yeah. Oh, yep. yeah, those guys made pretty good money. They paid him well. Our morning guy was paid pretty darn good at KLCE. Mark Roberts, he made a lot of money, mm -hmm. but he didn't really need it. He wasn't married, didn't have a kid, you know, and that kind of thing. But they did it for competitive reasons because they wanted a good morning show. And yeah. I guess I didn't qualify as a good morning guy. I I'm don't just know. picturing, even though back in the seventies, eighties, you probably had a. I'm just imagining you probably had a very low income house and. Yeah, yeah, and Idaho is a lot cheaper. And... Idaho is way cheaper than Utah. Uh, uh -huh. I think you'd pay two thirds the price for a house in Idaho that you'd pay for the same thing. Just, in Utah. Okay, so yeah, what was your average dinner like? You probably. Uh, did, were you eating canned food or it's <laughs> a limited amount of income? You didn't have a whole lot. No, of we just, just modest, you know, who knows? My, my wife would make casseroles and, and nothing extravagant. Once in a while we go to McDonald's, not very often, you know, we're just yeah. a middle income family. I don't think we were poor exactly, but we weren't exactly wealthy you probably weren't sure. drinking four glasses of milk a day or something like that with your <laughs> income unless you yeah. knew a dairy farmer that would give you milk right <laughs> no you know but milk isn't the most expensive thing you can drink either i mean we didn't drink wine so that's no, i just remember staying at a friend of mine's house in 1990 his dad was a security guard i think he made 400 a month and i didn't know i was only 10 years old i didn't have a concept of money i just said how come we don't yeah. drink a lot of milk oh it costs more than we can afford oh well i remember this. in 19 um when we first got married it was like 1971 and i was working at keyy and i think i was making 500 a month and then KCPX, give me a little bit more, not much, you know, just Saturday, Sunday night, that kind of thing. I think the, one of the problems with radio is you have to work Sundays. Yes. And it, you know, and that, it always bothered me because I'd miss church or sometimes I would have to miss church, but it was just one of the, the things of radio. And I yeah. kept thinking, is it all bad to have to work Sunday? Well, conference is on Sunday and somebody's sitting behind those controls and making sure a conference gets on the air. So I guess it's not as evil as one might think, except when you got to play the hits on Sunday, you know, whatever. But I'd go yeah, this there. This is back I'd... before automation took place. Yeah, before automation, we were all live at that time, you know. Yeah, yeah, that was in the in the seventies, and so they had automation back then, but not as sophisticated as now. Right, it was just reel to reels, and yeah, yeah it, and you would have to attend them. Yep. You could leave them alone for a while, but you have to come back and replace the reels or something. Yep. And, but the live formats were a lot more fun to listen to because you interacted sure. with people, you know, the listeners would call you on the request line and you could play with them on the air a little bit. But 
I was making like 500 a month at KYY, and then I went over to Santa Maria, California. And that was, we were first married and our first baby was born. She was like six months old. And I was making, what did I make in Santa Maria? 600, six, maybe, maybe 650, 700, something in there. And then the next job was KFXM in San Bernardino. And I was making 750 a month. I thought, wow, we're making money, man. Well, not that much. It got us better off than I was. I think it was making 700 in Santa Maria. And then I got a job at KIMN in Denver, 1000 a month. I thought I was rich, man. I thought I was rich. And uh, although I got fired there because of politics again, so we moved to Phoenix, Mesa, Phoenix. And I think I was making 800 a month uh, at, at KRIZ, something like that. It still, it wasn't a lot of money. You're toying around, you know, a couple bucks here and there, trying to make some dances, do some dances on the side, maybe do a little voice work. So once in a while, I do cut a commercial, but not very often. Um, so that's the life of a DJ. You know, you're just trying to be as modest and good as you know how to be. You drove an old car, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. So let's go back to, I guess, what, March of 88. You're in Blackfoot. And so how did Sounds of Sunday come about? And let's talk about Sounds of Sunday. Okay. I, I came into uh, KLCE uh, and there I discovered, well, actually I heard KLCE in Rexburg when I was up there and we did a thing called, uh, we did a Sunday morning show from the bookstore, Deseret Book, the LDS top 10 countdown, something like that. At I think Deseret Book in Blackfoot? You know, in Rexburg. We were in Rexburg oh, at the time. And so, and so I had live heard, on location. Well, no, we actually pre-recorded it and, and then we played it on Sunday morning. I think it was a half hour, maybe an hour. Oh, okay. And, but I, I was kind of responding to, to sounds of Sunday that I heard on KLCE in Blackfoot and sounds of Sunday. I had heard before when I, when we lived in West Jordan, because they were doing it at K96 out of Provo. And I oh, think okay. it first started like in, Oh, I'm going to say 76, 77. Jim Burgoyne was working at, uh, at K96 in Provo, KOVO's FM. And he started putting on this uh, LDS music, Janice Cap Perry and Lex Diaz Avedo and the Tab Choir and so forth. And he got a re good response from it. And this was at K96? Yeah, K96 and that, in Provo. Was I think that when Jim place... Sumter was the program director? Well, he, 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 yeah, one time he was. It was a little later. But at the time, I can't remember who the program director was, but Jim was there as a sales salesman. And he suggested, let's do, let's on Sunday morning, let's play Janice Cap Perry and, and that. And he called it Sounds of Sunday. So that's okay. where it first started. And then Jim found his way up into the Blackfoot station. He was a general manager there and he hired me and he was doing Sounds of Sunday there too. And that's where basically it started with Jim Burgoyne. And so while I was there, I... This is a little told story. I got mad at Jim one day because Jim, you know, you get into little friction things at jobs and stuff. I sure. thought I was unappreciated. Especially so in I, radio. Oh, in radio. Yeah. And Jim, like I say, this was a very short lived uh, problem that I had with Jim. I says, I'm going to take a job in Idaho Falls. I'm going to work for Kim Lee, who is, by the way, the owner of F of Hot 100 that we're talking about. That yeah. time he owed Z103 up there in Cozy in Idaho Falls. I'll take a job up there. I'll just quit KLC and I'll move up there, you know, or, or take the job up there. Well, I never did materialize, but in the process of all that, our ward was subdivided, not the ward, the stake was subdivided. And we ended up in Glenn Rawson's ward. 
So Glenn Rawson's teaching gospel essentials up so on the stage. Who is Glenn Rawson exactly? Because I didn't know who Glenn Rawson was until yeah, Facebook he was our kid, 2020. He, he was our kid's seminary teacher in Blackfoot. And I think we have seven kids, and I think probably five of them had him for a seminary teacher one time or another. And so at that time, the kids are still quite a bit younger. So they had him later. But he was teaching gospel essentials up on the stage in the Blackfoot 7th Ward. And so we go up there, and I thought, if I'm going to take this job up in Idaho Falls at Cozy, I think it was called at the time, I want to sound to Sunday up there too. But I want to make it better than what we have in Blackfoot. I'm going to put some inspirational stories on there. And I thought of doing them myself, but I thought I don't have the resources and so forth to do it. And I asked, I approached Glenn. I says, Glenn, would you, uh, would you like to do some inspirational stories on the radio? And I explained what I was doing. Well, yeah, I might be interested in doing that. Do you have stories? Yeah, I've got like 200 of them written up. Whoa. Well, I thought, well, this is the perfect guy. And when I sat and listened to him speak, I closed my eyes for a moment. And I thought, he has a radio-friendly voice. You know, it's not just a skinny little voice or some guy, a lecturer. He had a nice voice. And I thought, he would do well on the radio. So later on, I changed my mind about leaving Classy, and I stayed there. And, you know, we made up with Jim and all that kind of stuff. Jim's been a friend all these years. And so I told Jim of my idea, putting Glenn on the radio. And he says, yeah, why don't you do that? Bring him in. Let's record some. So I brought him in. It was like uh, 1997 when we finally got around to it. July 15th, 1997. I think that's the first story. We went in and recorded yep, one story. on your website. And it was, uh, yeah, it's on the website. And I think it's close enough to touch. I think that was a story on the woman that reached out for the savior for healing when she was walked, when he was walking down the street and she was healed. Oh, okay. And, and I think that was the story that he first recorded. And I, he brought some music from uh, some of the LDS instrumental uh, tracks that he had from the church and so forth. And I mixed him in. I was able to make it sound pretty good. And Jim loved it. Yeah. I put it on the air. And we did two more stories after then. We had three stories we put on the air. And the program director was Wayne Richards at the time. And Wayne was a little dubious. Well, I guess so. If Jim says, we'll do it. <clears throat> so we played him on Sunday and we'd play him every hour. And every and we had three per week that we did for a year. Every week he'd come in there and record three new stories. And I'd it would take me probably four hours or five hours to produce three stories. His job, he wrote it up, and he'd come in there, and he'd mic it. And usually, he's pretty good at recording. He just does it right off the bat. And I thought, I am not that good at this. I have to do several takes before I get it right. <laughs> you know. But he was really good at what he did. He's used to speaking in public quite a bit at firesides and so forth. And he'd come in and record that story, and then it would take me another hour or so to get music together to make it sound good, to, to score the music underneath the voice and then add the song after then, it was ready to play on Sunday. So we did that for a year. Then later on, Glenn wanted to keep going and do some more stories. So we ended up, now we do five stories per Sunday. We, we add in those stories. I, I bet I've recorded 480 of these, produced probably close to 500 stories by now. And we, over the years, since 1997. <clears throat> Yeah. By the way, Glenn Rawson can be found at glennrawsonstories.com. That's right. Glenn Rawson, R-A-W-S-O-N. Yeah. R-A, yeah. Uh, Stories.com. Oh, okay. G-L-E-N-N. -N. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
And um, I didn't know who Glenn Rawson was. Well, he wasn't much of anything. He was a seminary teacher at the time. Well, no, but I, I found him on Facebook during He's the a big deal now. Yeah. yeah and so later the... on, Glenn uh, became an institute teacher at ISU for a short time. And then he, Larry H. Miller hired him to come oh. to Salt Lake and produce the Joseph Smith papers, television series. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And so Glenn got involved in that and played on BYU. And uh, he became pretty well known after that. Actually, I was uh, when I started producing the stories for KLCE, um, John Hare of um, 106.5 in Salt Lake, I think it was Cozy 106.5, yeah. was playing Sounds of the Sabbath. And he asked if he could play those stories in Salt Lake. And I said, sure. So I made them available to him. And we had to change the names, the intros to Sounds of the Sabbath rather than Sounds of Sunday. But I was able to edit that in and get it done. So that went for a long time. And that's his first introduction into Salt Lake. And that's probably where Larry H. Miller heard him. And so when he did that. did the sounds. So you're in Blackfoot. This program, yeah. I guess, starts in 87 or 88 or longer than that. Oh, yeah. That's when Sounds of Sunday started when Jim got there. Probably 80. Yeah, probably 86 or something like that. So 85. what? I guess it was an hour long each Sunday morning. And no, then... he actually had it on six hours. Oh, wait oh. a minute. I'm not sure the original. He may have had it three or four hours, but I think he carried it till noon most of the time. Okay. And then so... later on, later on in the 90s, he, he moved it to two o'clock. So he'd play it until two o'clock and a little reluctant to play it longer. Wasn't sure how it would go over, but it got really good ratings. I mean, the ratings were really very high, probably mm -hmm. as high as any time during the week. So he got encouraged to go ahead and continue to run it longer in the day. Okay. So I guess at first, because now if you listen to Sounds of Sunday on soundsofsunday.com, yeah. or with your smart speaker, just say whatever it is, play Sounds <laughs> of Sunday. Or Sounds we'll of Sunday 24-7 from tuning. Yeah, so yeah. I guess at first it was just church music. There, I guess you probably introduced the songs. or Was somebody doing it live? Was it recorded? Yeah, you mean at KLCE? Yes. My son David was actually working at the station. He'd go in there Sundays and he got a job. And they everything was on a cart. Mm -hmm. One song per cart. And it was like those eight-track cartridges, but it was like yep. a four-track. It was a broadcast cart, which was more like a four-track cart. Yeah. And they had the songs on the carts and they just go through and routinely grab songs and play them, you know, one after the other. There was no real science behind it. Well, I think they eventually made a music log and I think Wayne Richards had something to do with that, but it was just done live. Okay. I don't know. And, and the available songs at the time were Janice Cap Perry mostly. Well, because I remember a station in Salt Lake, <laughs> KUTR, AMA, there yeah. seemed to be a ton of church music out well, they there. Were, that's Fine. correct. And I was there in uh, working at K-Light in, uh, before I moved to Rexburg. And I'd left Kiss and I was at K-Light. And their sister station was KUTR. Yes. 860 yeah. AM. And uh, I wasn't sure I'd go, oh, how well it would go over as an AM station. But they made the best of it. And some people liked it. And, yeah. Um, Thought it was interesting. Anyway, uh, that would have been nineteen. I guess the point is, I, I I was under the impression there was a lot more out there than just Janet Janice Cap Perry. There, there was, was there was Michael McLean, there was Kenneth Cope, those guys. Yeah, but Janice Cap Perry was kind of the beginning of it all. But you're right, there was other things out there. Michael McLean was a big deal. Mm -hmm. 
and and Kenneth Cope became a big deal later on. And uh, Sherry Call was in there, and uh, I know there's others I'm not thinking of. Um, the Gibbons family, which is Felicia Sorensen back in those days. Mm -hmm. Hillary Weeks made her her debut probably in the oh I'm going to say the mid '90s yeah. into the late '90s. Hillary yeah, Weeks, I remember hearing Bulmer. that name. Yeah. But yeah, um, I, I, I've heard songs and I don't want to get into it because this podcast is going very long, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, but I heard, yeah, there was, I just get the songs in my head and I thought, who sings this? Because I used to listen to KUTR a lot when they were a church music station when I was a kid. I was very yeah. fascinated by you. Yeah, I didn't grow up in Utah. So when I came down to Utah, I thought, well, I'm in the... Well, back then, <laughs> the Mormon culture. Let's. I'm going to take advantage of this. I'm going to listen to a station that plays church music, that plays firesides on Sunday. I'm really going to get a hold of this and take advantage of it while I'm here. That was my thought process when I was a little kid. Yeah. And I did. Well, Lex Diazavedo was a big deal, too, and Marvin Goldstein. Mm -hmm. They did a lot of instrumental songs and things, and... Uh, yeah, Lex, Lex Diazavedo actually made a lot of instrumental elevator music that oh, they yeah, would he play did. on elevator music stations. Right. And that was a big deal with FM 100 in Salt Lake yep. and KBIG in Los Angeles and around the country. It was pretty trendy at the time, which oh, is yeah. background music, you know. But okay, so the Sounds of Sunday, I guess it would just it started out, you know, you play the Janice Cat Perry or whatever and say, This is Janice Cat Perry, Jesus was no ordinary man. Now here's this. And then you started inserting gospel messages around the time of July 15th, 1997, correct? Yeah, it was just it was actually the first of August that we finally got it done. Yeah. It, yeah. And we so we had it recorded, yeah. When did the Sounds of Sunday go syndicated? And when did, obviously, you must have bought the name because. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How I, did that come about? When Bonneville. Okay. KLCE was sold a couple of times. We sold to Marathon Media in 97, and then it went to Simmons. And Simmons was co owned by uh, FM 100 in Salt Lake. And I think, uh, yeah, it wasn't KSL. KSL stayed with uh, Bonneville. Eventually, Bonneville wanted to acquire FM 100 back, and they had to buy our stations in Idaho and the ones in St. George at the same time as a big package deal. And I think yep. it was $170 million for all those properties. But uh, our stations were worth probably $13, $14 million in Idaho. It's a smaller market. But they, were, they had to buy us to buy FM 100. And... There was some stuff that went down. I was a chief engineer. I was doing three things at the station. I was the default program director for the AM talk stations. And I was uh, also producing the Glenn Rawson stories to play on Sounds of Sunday. I was assisting with that. And it was just, you know, something I sort of volunteered to do. But when Bonneville bought us, they didn't like my profile of an employee. They sh one person should wear one hat, not three. So they sent me packing. Out the door I went. I was basically canned after 15 years, almost 16 years there. Because I, you know, one job, one person. And they could have taken all those responsibilities away, but I don't know how it would have affected my uh, attitude. They probably thought about that. So I had a son on a mission at the time, and one, he was in high school getting prepared to go. And 
I thought, what am I going to do now? I don't have a job. I took some jobs at some other stations in town around, you know, to offset till I got Social Security. I was 59 at the time. So anyway, I thought, I've always wanted to syndicate Sounds of Sunday. And when I recorded the stories, I had the impression. you get laid off at Bonneville? Uh, it was been December of 2003. Okay. And so I had always thought when I'd recorded the Glenn Rawson stories that these things were worth more than just to play in Blackfoot, Idaho, into the Southeast Idaho area. I had the impression, the spiritual impression that they would be heard everywhere or across the country at least, but I didn't know how it was going to happen. And at that point, it was like 2002, I'm 2003, 2004. I'm thinking about syndicating because I know Kim Lee wanted to play him in Twin Falls because he liked what I was doing and liked to put on his stations up in Twin Falls. And so he was one of the factors that got me to, to start syndicating it. And I hit some other stations, Preston and... Uh, Salt Lake, of course, was playing the Glenn Rawson stories. John Hare came to me for that. So I provided the stories, but I didn't do the syndicated program. He had his own. Then Vernal. Um, I got him into Vernal, and they were playing there. And eventually, I gave him the syndication. Was it just the stories, program. or was that also? Well, the, first the... of all, it was just the stories. Okay. And then when I started syndicating Sounds of Sunday, Vernal picked that up. And so, and, yeah, okay. So carry on. How did this all get and, syndicated other than just the Glenn Russen stories? Yeah, well, I, I kept okay. thinking, I've got to syndicate this program. I just can't put the stories in between uh, Maggie May by Rod Stewart and and uh, and what other pop song that was popular. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just wouldn't yeah. fit. Here's, here's, uh, here's Celine Dion. And uh, whatever song she had, you know, always by Atlantic Star was a great I song. I could see uh, a yeah. Glenn Rawson story being inserted in between Because You Love Me by Celine Dion and yeah. something else. But yeah, yeah I get yeah. your point. Glenn Fry, the one you love, well, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know? And I think they, they can't stand alone in, in a pop music program. They need to be surrounded by other spiritual music. That's what I was thinking. Yep. Oh, yeah. Kind of yep. like we were doing in Blackwood there, KLCE. Yeah. So I basically created a library and I, I was able to get all the music from KLC and bring it to my studio at home. They didn't mind. They had it all recorded in their automation anyway. It didn't matter to them. And Jim gave me permission to do all that. So I basically started the syndication at my house and uh, I started producing like one hour. Then I think I went to two and a half hours and I, I made them available to stations up in Twin Falls and and uh, into into Preston, and I can't remember who else got them at that time. There was a couple of. Eventually, I got them onto KLCE too, and they would play me in the afternoon. So it just kept evolving, one station at a time. Uh, I was able to get them into. What were some of the first stations? I actually, had one in Albuquerque. Really, because Simmons? Yeah, it was weird because FM 100 eventually switched in because they wouldn't do this format. Jim Burgoyne talked to uh, Greg Hansen who was the uh, general manager of FM 100 and got him to, to start soft Sunday sounds in salt Lake, which was basically the same program. And then we provided Glenn Ross and stories for FM 100. But then later on a new program direct, they were sold, I think to Bonneville and Bonneville. I had a pay arrangement for the stories and producing. So they'd send me a check like a couple hundred dollars a month or something, but they didn't want to pay for them, nor did they want them. So Bonneville decided that they didn't want to carry the stories anymore. 
you know, with soft Sunday sounds. That wow. was probably, uh, I don't know. They, they, FM 100 wants to be everything to everyone. And we're basically pigeonholed into an LDS market with sounds of Sunday. Yeah. Politics. Yeah. <laughs> How can I say it anymore? Although <laughs> I would imagine you could probably branch out and play something by Amy Grant. I do. Home. I, okay. well, I don't, you, there's an Amy Grant song. I play quite a bit. Um, Lori Kerrigan heirlooms is written by Amy Grant. Yeah. I'm talking and, about her old music. 82. Yeah, I don't know. I've never yeah. tried to do that. And I tried to stick with LDS people because I think K-Love won't play any of it. <clears throat> K-Love plays everything but LDS. Huh. I, because they want to get their contributions from the Baptist clergy. And if it, there's any Mormons on there, Janice Capri told me that story. She'd come up with a great new song and send it to California to be played on K-Love or wherever it was. And they, Provo, Utah, that's where she's at. Ooh, we need to check into this. And, Oh, she's Mormon. Ah, we can't play that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. There was, there was definitely, what's the word? Uh, religionism, yeah. <laughs> not sexism or racism. Yeah. There well, was here's the thing. I, there seems to be a lot of division with music. You know, there, there, I've heard some great Christian artists, especially yeah. back in the eighties and nineties. Maybe you've there heard were. Uh, yeah, you have Christian. to give him credit for that. That's true. Yeah, no, yeah, but there, there seems to be this division. You know, why can't uh, someone who's LDS listen to somebody like maybe you've heard of these people, Ray Bolts, yeah, Chris Christian, yeah, Steve Green. What what's the big Ray deal? Ray Bolts? Uh, record. I think he wrote the song. Uh, Michael now, Severn, I, watch the lamb. Mike, watch yes, the lamb. Yes, he did. Yeah. And we we recorded that in the KLC studios. Glenn thought that would be a good song to play uh, with one of his stories. So we got a seminary teacher, Michael Severn, to record it with an instrumental track. We got an LDS bookstore. Or not an LDS, but a Christian bookstore. So oh, we okay. produced that, and that's how it gets played. Ray Bolts, you're right. There are some things that 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 are appropriate to play. There's no question. Yeah. I think you might ask the converse question, though. Why do they have so much opposition to playing LDS music on their formats? And yeah, it's but I've seen like, it both ways. I've seen, yeah. oh, I, I can't listen to this guy. He's he's Christian. Well, yeah, yeah. but he, I, yeah. I don't get it. Yeah. I don't know. It's uh, it's a tough call. I basically don't play a lot of that music because I want to have time for the LDS artists. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, there's a couple things. Jackie Ivanko, I don't think is LDS. But yeah, she she does a good job with a couple of her songs. And I don't, I play it once in a while. You know, yeah. I don't know. It's a it's a hard call because I get a lot of music from a lot of people, and I would like to give the emphasis on LDS uh, producers and singers. So, how do you determine? Okay, so I I guess we're done talking. Uh, do you say want to say anything more about how this came into syndication? Or yeah, it was a slow, gradual process. Talking to stations, would you like to play it? I had to talk mm -hmm. them into it, and they finally played it. Yeah, it's interesting down in Arizona and Sholo. Oh, that was, okay. That was quite an ordeal getting it into there. Oh, and I'm really? going to say that occurred probably in the ooh, 2010. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't know, eight or 10 or something like that. And I remember uh, because I knew that the concentration of their listeners were a lot of LDS people in the Sholo Snowflake area. They have a temple in Snowflake. Oh, yeah. So I yeah. talked to the program director. He was not LDS. 
he was a good guy. But I, I talked to him and I says, well, you want I'm going to play an hour of it or something. And he thought, decided to do it, even though the general manager who was LDS wasn't in favor of it very much. He wanted to play sports. That was into his thing. He didn't appreciate the music that much. Oh, wow. But this on the LDS program director decided to start playing Sounds of Sunday there in Sholo on, uh, on um, Magic 101.7, 1017. And so he was able to pick up a sponsor from the local cemetery, the non-LDS cemetery that wanted all those Mormons to be buried in their graves. <laughs> Isn't wow. that funny? So they wow. would be the sponsor of Sounds of Sunday there in Sholo. Uh, and so eventually he played all five hours. And it fit pretty well there. It does okay. And then the, the guy out of Safford, his name was Dan Curtis, he had the Safford station in Arizona, and he was, I guess, uh, the CEO, what do you call it? He was over the general manager in Sholo, and he'd travel around. You know, he'd go to both stations to make sure everything was okay, check out the operation and everything. And he heard Sounds of Sunday on in Sholo, and he said, we'd like to play that in Safford, too, on Magic 100.7 in Safford, different station. I said, Sure. And as it turned out, they play at 10 hours in Safford and only five wow. hours in Sholo. So, okay, that's what we have today. Yeah. So it, <laughs> it migrated. Yeah, so it's just a slow process of doing this. Do you get a lot of response uh, nationwide? Because I would think outside of Utah or maybe even outside of the Intermountain West, you would probably have people appreciative of the sounds of Sunday. Let's say somebody's back East. Yeah. Doesn't do. get a lot of exposure to LDS music. I'd imagine you get a lot of emails from back East or. I get a yeah. few here and there. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how the internet station started. Yeah. Let's um, get into that. A fellow approached me who was uh, the son-in-law of a guy I knew in Bismarck on my mission. His name was Steve Reed. And his oh, dad, okay. was a, dad was a branch president in Bismarck back when I was on my mission there. Steve Reed later on got a recording studio, moved to Idaho. He moved to Brigby and set up a little recording studio in his house and did some recording. And his son-in-law came to me and said, we ought to maybe have a streaming station. I haven't even considered doing that. And so we got a computer together Tori Park and a good friend of mine in Pocatello put a computer together and started streaming Sounds of Sunday. And first of all, it was done at Jim Burgoyne Station in Idaho Falls. He had some extra streaming computers there. And so it started there. And then we eventually took custody of it and I put it in my own studio. So that's how that, that started, you know, with the doing Sounds of Sunday 24-7. I hadn't even given it a thought until he approached me with this idea. And uh, so anyway... Uh, it's been going ever since <laughs> so as a streaming computer. And I get responses from a guy in Australia. He sends me an email now and then, and he's thankful to listen to it there. And a guy in Indiana is always emailing me back and forth. Are these Makes members? It, are these not? Uh, yeah, I think they're, or, they're members. They're members. Are, yeah. do, do they have ties to Utah? Were they from Utah? And uh, the one in Australia, I think, had been raised in St. George or somewhere down there at one time. Okay. The guy in Indiana, I don't know that he does have tie to Utah. Um, I just hear from various people from, you know, various locations 
um, I had a girl, I got a contact was well, used to be on BYU radio at one time, BYU radio took it off because they were going all talk or something and they've never put it back on. So I don't know. But at that time there was a girl in California that heard it on BYU radio, not on the 24 seven, but on BYU radio, who was in my ward growing up in Linwood. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. Same guy. It's me. <laughs> the same little weirdo that you knew back then. Huh, so okay. it's funny the people you hear from, uh, they're just random. You don't know where they're going to come from. A lot of them are out of the coverage area of into the station. So they listen to um, uh, Sounds of Sunday on Alexa or Google Home or, you know, one of the pod devices, Apple. I find that there's probably, I think I get more response from the internet streaming than I do the stations. I'm not sure if that's yeah. because I have more listeners there or what the reason is. Not sure what the reason is for that. But I know that the listening is significant on 24-7. Yeah. Now, let's uh, the words sounds of Sunday, I think for the longest time, I thought they were just generic. Yeah, I got, a, I got the trademark on it when it became available. I got the and national trademark. When on was it. that? Oh, probably 10 or something like that. Okay. So I... Heard sounds of Sunday on a radio station in Manti. Yeah, Doug was, Barton yeah, has had that. He's had that that uh, that program title for years, and Doug's a friend of mine, and I own the name, but he uses it, and I don't care. Go ahead and use it, Doug. You're a good guy. Okay, I I don't so, want to get that because there's people. Yeah, who might, um, I, it's I a little confusing to listeners because they don't know what they're hearing sometimes, and I wish there were some. Um, contrast so we knew which program you were listening to some identity further identity on the manti stations i can't change mine much because it is what it is yeah but uh, he's had that name for so long and he's such a wonderful man yeah he would sponsor the manti pageants up there stake president doug barton he owns the stations up there in manti um anyway that's the I know there's one station that I asked to quit using it because I was going to put another station in their market and they graciously did so and changed the name of their program. Okay. Um, so how do you determine what gets played? Cause I don't think it's gut feel. I, there's no way for me to know. I listen to a song and I keep thinking it has a hook to it. It's catchy, whatever. And I have two rotations of music that are major the A's and the B's. Now the A's play at the top and the bottom of the hour. Generally, those are the highest rotation of music. And I figure they're the blue chip songs in the, uh, in the radio days of playing top pop music. We, we had similar rotations in place. Uh, you'd play the most popular songs the most often you might turn them around every two and a half hours or so, or maybe three or four hours, depending on the station and the market. The B's are older songs. They're not played quite as frequently, but they're played quite, quite often. And they're played at the quarter hours, like quarter after, quarter till. Usually somewhere up in that last quarter of the hour, there'll be a B comes up. And they are mainstays, things that you will never forget. Older songs. I Walk By Faith is a good example. Uh, a lot of the Lex Diazavedo Time to Love songs are in there. I love Lex Diazavedo's A Time to Love. Mm -hmm. We can have it all and have it forever. A time to love, if it's love. Uh, those are beautiful songs. Lex, Lex is just, uh, that's a masterpiece of time to love, as far as I'm concerned. The Last Touch, 
That's a B. I play that once in a while. Now, the A's come up about every two and a half weeks. The B's rotate in about every three and a half weeks, something like that. Mm -hmm. The rest of the songs are more random. Tabernacle Choir have two entries per hour. Some are the newer songs, and the others are the older Tab Choir songs. And I can't tell you what the rotation is, but I think the newer songs rotate in probably every month or something like that. And the older songs, maybe every couple months. Something like that. Interesting. If you put some songs way back in the mid to late 80s on there, I I don't know the song titles. I just know some. Yeah, well, those are in the B's. Quite often they're in the B's, the 80s. Yeah. Okay. What are you thinking of? Well, there's a song that had the lyrics Faith and Hope. It was a lady that sung it. I don't know who. I don't think it was Janice. Sounds like a Janice Capri song. Are you sure not? Faith and Hope. Da 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 da. Oh yeah, I think so. I know. I think I know that song. Faith. That's hers. I'm not sure. I didn't sound like her. Janice. I have to think on that one. There's another song I remember hearing. Might be Michael McLean. That might be Michael McLean. Yeah, I can't remember. It was that. a lady who sung it, though. Yeah, Michael I know. But McLean he, may have Michael McLean it. didn't sing much. He was a songwriter, just like yeah. Janice Cap Perry. She didn't yeah. sing much either. Um, there was one that that uh, KUTR would play back in 1988, I believe. It talked about uh, Nephi building a ship. Yep. I uh, can't remember. I just remember you know Nephi. Nephi. We know. Oh, it's you primary can build song. A ship. I think. No, it sounded too upbeat for that. I know I'm playing Book of Mormon stories now, Brett Raymond. Oh, no. I, I avoided that song for a long time because I wasn't sure what to do with it. And it's it's because it's kind of rock-based. It's a little bit rock-based, you know, I thought. But they, I went to my son's ward, and they were playing it in the primary. I thought, why am I not playing it? So I pulled it out and started playing Do you think playing. we're ever going to see a day where we see, where we will hear punk rock LDS music. (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) But you know what? There's so much EFY now, and especially for youth uh, and the and the young women's the young uh, the the youth themes that are coming out today that borderline on pop rock. Huh. That's interesting to know. Well, Elijah Thomas, um, some of the Ali. Let's see who's in there. Uh, Lizzie Newbold. I trust is a trust in the Lord. I think is the name of it. Oh, Nick day is Nick day is writing a lot of the songs for the church. And he's from Idaho falls. I found out he went to, I think Bonneville high school. And I think that's where he went to school. And Nick day is, is actually working for the church, writing these themes. And so I am very taken. I, those have, those songs have to be played far as I'm concerned. I might be 78 years old, but I'm not the one that's going to be a missionary in a couple of years. Those kids are. And those songs are meaningful to them. And whatever gives them faith to go forward and do their work, I'm all for it. You know, it might, I don't, it's not terribly rock based. I try to avoid that if I can, but some of the stuff just borderlines into it. And if it's inspirational to them, who am I to say they shouldn't have it? Yeah, I'll tell you a story. I remember feeling the spirit to a Pink Floyd song. Maybe yeah. that's, yeah. you know. I, yeah. So. Well, we don't want to offend the people that aren't acclimated into that music too much. Because mm-hmm. they might, it, it's like language, you know. Are you going to speak Spanish to an English crowd? Not necessarily yeah. if you want them to understand you. 
So music is a lot like language too. If you're acclimated to it and you understand it, uh, that's great. But if you're not, if it's foreign to you and you don't know what to do with it, then maybe you're going too hard too quickly. Well, I understand, and maybe you know a little something about this more than me, but I understand that the general authorities have a, a problem with a lot of the punk rock or having church hymns sung to punk rock or thing. Do you know anything about that? I've heard that. Uh, well, it wouldn't surprise me because it has to do with what you grew up with and what you associate music with. And there was a time when it didn't, it didn't mean anything good. And so trying to equate it is difficult. It's like, uh, speak, it's like doing uh, rap or something like that. Uh, and, it, and usually rap is about, you know, robbing stores and beating up people and, you know, the rap music scene. Yeah, although bad, I've heard bad some words pretty good go Christian with it. rap out there. Yeah, I know. And there is some of that. They penetrated at some of it and been able to, uh, to move it around. So there's some virtue behind it. MC Hammer did that in the late nineties. And it's actually was, you know, Oh yeah. Hammer was a pretty good guy actually. Yeah. That's when I first got introduced to rap. And so I'm not too crazy about rap, but then there's some things that are pretty, pretty cute to listen to. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I just wonder, you know, cause you hear. It's just so gangster mentality. That's what I get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. But you hear K-Love, maybe Air One is a better example. Christian rock, kind of grungy sounding Christian. I wonder yeah, if we're ever yeah, yeah. going to see those days in church music, LDS church music. I guess Singles uh, Ward probably came the closest to that, the Singles Ward yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. They, they might borderline on it, but I doubt they'll get terribly intense into it. Huh. Uh, that's my opinion. I could be wrong. So time will tell as we see what happens yeah. in the future. Well, I don't think, that... I just don't think you can replace good old strings and traditional instruments. Maybe I'm just stuck in my own well, way. Then there, there, there is this argument too. And to a point, I actually subscribe to it. Yeah. If you sound like a group called Lincoln Park, which you may or may not have heard. Yeah. My, I think my son used then... to play how can you be spiritual? I, I don't, you know, because at some point the lyrics might be good, but then the music itself sounds darker. The music gives well, you at some point you've the got words, to draw the line. The words say so much. Like if I started playing "Wild Thing," you make my heart sing. I mean, that to me is a debasing song. That's immoral. <laughs> when you listen to that <laughs> <Yeah>. song, well, what's, <laughs> and what's I would worse hate to now, think if you heard that Tom that Lowe? song. You know, gets a. Uh, introduced into the LDS arena. I don't know if it ever will, but <laughs> because it has so yeah, much at some history. Point, I mean, it. I could sing the most spiritual song out there, but if I make myself sound like the song crawling by Lincoln park, great yeah. lyrics, it's not going to be spiritual. It's some, there's gotta be, there's that line you have to draw too. Well, as... the problem is the listener is familiar with that from the day and it's really hard to accept it. So that's you have to fight against that. It's tradition. You have people, people have their traditions, and it's difficult to separate themselves from what they've always known. Oh well, don't get me wrong. I yeah. love Lincoln yeah. Park. Yeah, but, but I don't. I can't see a song sounding like that with good, good spiritual <laughs> lyrics being I spiritual. I, I know it's a. I know I can't either. It's okay. I mean, your body. I don't want to get into a discussion, but I, your brain is taught to respond to certain musical chords and at some point you get real heavy into 
heavy rock, it's no longer spiritual, in my opinion. Well, I listen to music, and some of it's too simple for words. You know, Taylor Swift and my grandson's oh, yeah. into Taylor. And it's the same old three chords. That, 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 that. I think that is the most simplistic, stupid song I've ever heard. Isn't yeah. there more? Isn't there more depth to music than that, 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 that? And they're not even very far apart, just barely enough to make a chord out of it. And there's other songs that have signatures. You know, they go on and you maybe two measures before they repeat. And there's an actual moving melody to this thing. I, I look yeah. for songs that have a little more depth in the writing of the music. Mm-hmm. Wild Thing, You Make My Heart Sing has no melody. I mean, it's like as basic. I don't know. I don't know about Linkin Park because I'm not familiar with that much. But um, I go to good examples. I really like music that has. And the Tab Choir usually will perform songs that have signature. And. Mm-hmm. I love the song. I know that my savior loves me. I know that my I savior. I think you played that me. on last Sunday. I probably did. I play it. Um, it it's in the, it's in the newer L, uh, tab choir um, music. It probably comes up once a month, something like that. Yeah. That's a beautiful song. And, and, and I talked to some of these songwriters and you know where that song came from? I know that my savior loves me. No. I talked I talk to the writer of it. I'm trying to think of her name. Um, really a nice lady. She wrote that for her state conference for the youth to perform in state conference. And that's all she thought it would be for. Oh, okay. Interesting. And one of the, some of the people there, one of the ladies picked it up and sent it on to the tab choir and they thought so much of it. They thought they'd perform it. Oh, wow. They made a hit out of it. (laughs) She didn't expect uh, that. Yeah. That is uh, yeah, that is interesting. Wow. I'm trying well, to think of her name. Is I there anything about. else that uh, <laughs> you want to talk about or anything I may have glossed over? Well, um, I don't know where this is all going. Uh, I feel that I've basically consecrated the rest of my life to doing this. Well, it kind uh, of goes back to what your grandmother said, uh, doesn't it? About how you can use you yeah. use your talents for good or something. In the, well, I've yeah. always thought of media as being a way to um influence people toward good and then the music was definitely part of that and in the messages that you put on in audio and radio i'm not into video so uh, all i do is audio but that can work to influence people and i get messages back i get emails back from people one lady was up in canada just sent me a, a text that told me that she played the music for her patients at a hospital and they all love it really They're inspired by it and i thought wow I wouldn't, it, to me, um, I don't feel it like as much as they do, but the problem is with this, you get too close to the trees and you can't see the forest. Yeah. It, you're, you're just too close to it to really appreciate it the way other people do. If you hear it too much, it almost becomes old to you. And, yeah. and, and that's true with being a DJ on the radio, all those hit songs that people request, you're so sick of them. You don't want to hear them again. But you know that they're hits, and that's what people want to hear, so you play them. Yeah. So when you get when you get too close to the, and you get too close to the forest, you can't see the trees. I guess I had it backwards, one way or the other. But uh, uh, that's the problem I have, and and so I'm so close to it right now. I don't necessarily see it the way other people do, or hear it the way other people do. And yeah. I try to get back into that frame. You know, I do that weekly when I produce the show. You know, I like to listen to it again and. 
and uh, indulge in the music and the message of Glenn. Glenn, to me, makes that makes the show. Um, I don't know if the show would have existed without Glenn. I don't know. That's basically. Can I say I was, something about yeah. Glenn real quick? Yeah. I don't know why, but whenever I hear him speak, he reminds me of someone that I would eat tacos with at my house at lunchtime. I don't <laughs> know why. You probably would. <laughs> I don't know why. It just always has, the, whenever he speaks, I always have the image of eating tacos at my old house yeah. with Glenn Rawson. <laughs> I'll have to tell him. Am that. I the only one who thinks that? No, he's a pretty, he's a pretty ordinary guy. But actually. I always, I'd always, yeah. I always have to think of tacos. I don't know why. <laughs> tacos. Well, put some Cholula sauce on there for me. Yeah. <laughs> Green Cholula. Habanero. I love hot sauce, man. Oh, man. I do too. <laughs> yeah. The biggest problem I've had is uh, the autoimmune disease that I got about nine years ago. It's called myasthenia gravis. And I don't, not very many people get that, but it affects your muscles. It makes your muscles weak. It makes it hard for me to stand up and walk right. It makes it sometimes hard to speak. So I do a lot of editing on my show and I don't think you can really tell. Um, no, I can't. And the edits, and like right now, I've been speaking. I haven't edited anything we've talked about in this podcast, but sometimes it's hard to pronounce words a little bit. And that's my the thing that's affected me the most. I didn't used to have this problem 10 years ago, but I do now. But that's what happens when you get older, have to stay humble. You know, something has yeah. to make you humble. So I guess that's what it is. Yeah. And then losing my wife last December has put me into a different dimension. You know, I'm in a, a different well, life now. Um, 50 years together with her and seven kids and everything. So it's just a new adventure in life. And I, I, I look at it this way. If president Nelson can lose his wife and president Oaks can lose his wife little for me to think I shouldn't lose mine. Yeah. And you know, I know that it wasn't anything that the Lord cursed me with or did anything. It was her time to go. That's all there was. And, yeah. uh, and so it's just a new chapter in life for sure. I know I'll see her again one day. You know, we were married in the temple, and that temple marriage is just binding now. Is the day that we we walked into the temple. Yeah. So. Well, is there anything else you want to come? By the way, stay with me real quick. At the uh, I got something to talk to you about. Uh, but is there anything else you want to talk about before I end the podcast? No, that's everything. I appreciate uh, all the support that we receive from Sounds of Sunday. It's uh, yeah, makes me good, know that what I do is show. worthwhile. Yeah, I, I think thank it's you. very interesting that I found out about you accidentally. <laughs> seems how it goes <laughs> yeah all right folks i will talk to you later